Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. It is June 27th. I'm Kyle Rizal. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday. If you pay attention to what the Fed is up to, like we do here in this production shop, you know that Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, is dead set, dead set on bringing inflation back down to 2%. Which is not where it is right now. Uh, and and so it's, look, why 2%, Jay? That's the fundamental question we're going to talk about today. Why 2%? Where would that come from? How hard is it going to be? All that good stuff. Yeah. And so to figure out why the Fed decided on the target inflation rate of 2% and whether or not it should stay there or maybe even go up a notch or down a notch, who knows? Anyway, here to make us smart about all of this is David Wilcox. He's an economist at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and director of U.S. Economic Research at Bloomberg Economics. David, welcome to the show. It's very good to be with you. I know we're supposed to have the whole conversation about this, but surely you can answer quickly. Why 2%? <laughs> <laughs> um, Easy question. So how long is the show supposed to run? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, it's a great question. The really, imp- Let's start with the basics. The most important point is that a central bank set an inflation target and be absolutely clear about uh, its determination to consistently push inflation toward that target and keep inflation low and stable. It's important about what precisely the target is, but it's much more important that there be a target and that everybody understand, just like Kai was saying in the intro, that the de- central bank is completely serious about consistently pursuing the inflation target. Central banking actually bears a little bit of resemblance to a good, healthy marriage. Commitment (laughs) needs to be at the center of the arrangement. Can't wait to see where this goes. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so it really matters that a central bank commit to an inflation target and be completely serious about it and have nobody question its commitment. Why is having that target so important, Mr. Wilcox? Well, it's important because economies work better when there's less uncertainty. And uncertainty just turns out to be like a needless friction in the system. So if people aren't clear about what policymakers are trying to do, that leads to all kinds of uh, uncertainties. And uncertainties lead to risk premiums. And risk premiums make borrowing more expensive for you and me when we run a credit card balance or take out a mortgage. It leads to additional expenses for governments when they run deficits. Uh, Risk premiums play an important role, but what you don't want is for a needless risk premium that can be taken out when a central bank is clear about its objectives, clear about its determination to meet those objectives, and communicates clearly Mm -hmm. about how it's going to go about doing all of that. So if um, the target inflation rate is supposed to promote price stability, um, given that even 2% inflation inflation is still prices going up, why is the rate not 0%? Well, there's a few reasons that uh, push a central bank to adopt a target that's a little north of, z- of zero. First of all, uh, try as they might... Uh, the statistical agencies 
uh, really can't generate a perfect measure of the rate of increase of the cost of living. Building an accurate measure of inflation is really challenging, but the best estimates are that the official measures that we've got overstate the true rate of price increase by a little bit. There's different measures of inflation, but the one that the Fed sets its navigational guide on probably is overstated to the tune of something like half a percent per year, according to one recent and highly authoritative uh, estimate. So even if you wanted to target true zero on inflation, you'd aim for something a little north of zero on the actual flesh and blood metrics that we have. A second consideration is Let's think for just a moment about how the Fed fights recessions. The way it fights recessions mainly is by cutting its policy rate. And in order to be effective, it needs to be able to cut its policy rate by quite a bit when a recession strikes. If uh, the interest rate is low on the eve of a recession, the Fed's not going to have much cutting room, and so it's not going to be able to crowd in as much as investment as it otherwise would be. It's not going to be able to cause the dollar to depreciate to make our products more attractive in foreign markets. It's going to be less capable of supporting employment and spending and getting the economy back on track to recovery. So that's another reason for building in a little bit of a cushion north of zero. Right. So policy rate, we should just be clear, is is the main interest rate that the Federal Reserve uses in this country. It's called the federal funds rate. But let me ask you this, Mr. Wilcox, why 2%? Did Jay Powell or Ben Bernanke or Paul Volcker or or, or uh, Mariner Eccles wake up in a fever dream one day and say, 2%, that's what inflation should be? <laughs> no. Uh, first of all, the only person who calls me Mr. Wilcox is my mother, so I'd be more comfortable with David. Uh, secondly, there was a ton, there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of staff research that went into laying the foundation uh, for this. Um, I actually am an alum of the Federal Reserve Board staff, so I engaged in a whole bunch of, I lost some of the good years of my life uh, to that effort. Um, it didn't hurt, by the way, that the Fed was not first in line among central banks around the globe to adopt an inflation target. And by the time the Fed uh, got there in 2012, a number of other central banks had uh, set inflation targets. They differ a little bit from bank to bank, some some of them in terms of their exact dimensions, but 2% was very much in line with, uh, with the global practice among right. central banks. Um, it was set, by the way, you asked who was the chairman yeah. at the time. It was Ben Bernanke. Mm-hmm. Oh, there you go. Uh, this was something that uh, Ben had uh, been working on for a long time. He published a very noted volume uh, about a decade earlier with three co-authors that laid a lot of the intellectual groundwork for why an inflation target was a good idea he had done an awful lot of consultation with members of the policymaking committee, the Federal Open Market Committee, some of whom were pretty skeptical when Ben came into office. He did a ton of consultation with members of Congress to make sure that they would be comfortable with this choice, including setting it um, 
at at two percent. Ultimately, it was a decision of the committee, but that was decision was widely vetted before, so it didn't catch anybody by surprise. There are some economists that think the Fed should raise that target to be higher than two percent, give even more of a cutting cushion, I guess you could say. What do you think of that? Uh, it's a it's a good question. Um, what a committee sets, a committee can uh, amend. And so I completely agree with the perspective that 2% doesn't need to be the answer for all time. Um, let's think, let's unpack some of the issues around the um, advisability of amending the 2% uh, target. First of all, in line with the theme that we started out with, which is creating certainty and commitment and comfort and squeezing out risk premiums, you don't want to be in the business of adjusting the inflation target on a frequent basis or without having really laid a solid foundation. The committee likes to think of uh, its inflation target and the larger elements of the structure around the 2% number as something akin to a central bank's constitution. It can be amended, but that amendment shouldn't be undertaken uh, lightly. Uh, an inflation target, the designated number, is something that it needs to endure uh, for more than this year. Uh, it needs to be seen as a a solid element of the economic uh, landscape. That's a, the, the world has changed since the 2% number was set in 2012. Mm -hmm. Back then, the sort of Goldilocks level of the policy interest rate, not too hot, not too cold, just right, that Goldilocks level of the policy interest rate was seen as probably in the neighborhood of 35 or 4%. And that number pretty clearly has come down in the meantime. The Fed's best estimate today is that that number is more like two and a half rather than three and a half or four. That means, just like Kimberly was saying, that means there's less cutting room for mm -hmm. the Fed when mm -hmm. times get soft. And so over the longer term in the fullness of time with a solid research foundation laid, I think uh, it could be very uh, beneficial and judicious of the Fed to raise the mm -hmm. inflation target from 2%. But right now, job one for the Fed is to restore the credibility of the inflation target and re wrestle inflation back to 2%. So put up or shut up, do you think they can do it? Absolutely. Uh, no question about it. One of the lessons that every modern central banker has learned coming out of the 1970s was how wrong it was to think that central banks couldn't control hmm. inflation. That was the mistake. That was the fundamental mistake that Arthur Burns made. It was the mistake that was corrected at tremendous cost by Paul Volcker with a pair of really costly uh, recessions hmm. in 1980 and 82. Uh, there's no question of uh, the capability of a central bank to deliver low and stable inflation. And by the way, 
just a sort of pro tip here. <laughs> what I'll I take was it. just do, what do I was tell just a monetary policy pro tip. You go. What I was just Taking referring notes. to is the reason why Jay Powell pretty conspicuously wraps himself in the mantle of yeah. Paul Volcker. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes mm. that's quite overt. Sometimes yeah. it's rather subtle. Uh, an example of the subtle to, subtle approach is when Powell refers to we're going to keep at it. Well, guess what the title of Volcker's memoir was? Oh, is that right? Keeping at it. Oh, that's so funny. That's yeah. so funny. That's good. I like that. That's really good. Very I don't clever. know for sure that that's what uh, Jay Powell has in mind, but he is deeply a student of history. He wants to align himself with Volcker. He wants um, overtly, subtly, in every way in between to make sure that he goes down in history, if need be, as the next generation Paul Volcker, not as Arthur Burns version 2.0. David Wilcox is an economist at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He's also the director of U.S. Economic Research at Bloomberg Economics. David, thank you so much for your time and for your expertise and your insights. That was super interesting. I love that. It's been fun to be with you. Keeping at it. Oh, man, that's great. Pro tips on monetary policy. (laughs) Only here, people, on Make Me Smart. (laughs) Oh, my lordy, dude. Yeah. You know, it's it's so interesting, you know, to hear him talking about all these lessons learned Mm -hmm. that the central banks Mm -hmm. can really control inflation and all these conversations we've had about the struggles of central banks to control inflation as well. Uh, But the job's just not easy. No, not at all. Sorry, I'm just Googling here really quickly, because for people who want to know more about what the Fed's doing now and what it has been doing in the past, I highly recommend Gina Smilek's book. And I can't mm-hmm. remember for the life of me what her book is called. Oh, my gosh. Oh it's my like Lord. downstairs on my shelf I know, right I know, I know, I know, I know, well. I know. Hang on. We'll have a link to it in the bio, show notes. Blah, blah, Oh, you're going to find yada, it. Yada, yada, yada. It's called Limitless. The Federal Reserve takes on yes, a new age of crisis. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's really good. Totally readable, and and Gina's great to begin with. So there's that. Yes, all those things. Uh, let us know what you think about the two percent target and and whether or not it's a good idea. If you have any monetary policy pro tips for us yourself, <laughs> uh, you could let us know at five zero eight eight two seven six two seven eight, also known as five zero eight UB Smart, or you can email us at make me smart at marketplace dot org, and we will be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. 
They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. All right, time for the news. Kimberly Adams, you go first. Big news out of the Supreme mm. Court, but it I don't know how much of a deal it's going to be that this happened, because the bigger concern was if it didn't right, happen. Right. So the Supreme Court came out with a ruling this morning on uh, the case was called Moore versus Harper. And it was about this uh, North Carolina redistrict congressional map redistricting case. Doesn't really matter. The big issue was whether or not the independent state legislature theory, which we talked about on the show a while back, was going to hold up in the Supreme Court. This idea that since states are supposed to set the rules for their elections, that state courts couldn't say anything about how state legislatures choose to run elections and draw districts. That was going to have huge implications for every election because it would basically mean that a state legislature compelled composed primarily of one party could draw just districts however they wanted to with no oversight whatsoever regardless of how it disenfranchised voters and the court said six to three that that's like not the deal that state courts do have the authority to you know serve as a check almost a check and balance you might say <laughs> on their own state legislatures uh it's it, it's a huge deal because this case had it gone the other way, which a lot of people thought it might because several of the more conservative justices on the court have been on record saying, you know, kind of positive things about this theory and other forums. This would have had just a, an earth shattering implication for the upcoming presidential election and pretty much every election to come. So uh, there's a bunch of really nice write-ups about it um, in most of the big publications. I'm looking at one in Politico and the New York Times. But it's one of these cases that we did talk about a while back. Huge deal that it went this way. Surprised some people. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because North Carolina's um, – the people who originally brought the case, the basically the GOP in North Carolina, the state court – that originally said, I'm trying to get this right. So basically they, they retried the case at the state level and tried to withdraw it from the Supreme Court by kind of vacating the right. court's previous decision with the idea that maybe that would make the court, the Supreme Court not say anything about it. But so many advocates were so concerned about this theory that the court, they asked the court to make a decision anyway, even though the original case was not effectively before it. And the court did that. And, and it thought that this was important enough to, you know, let it be said that this is what they think about it. And it's a big deal. Very big deal. So, Super big deal. Yeah. Um, the other story that I have is just a very quick note. It's a story I saw last week and just for whatever reason didn't get a chance to talk about it yet. It's in GQ about a surfer who won the biggest surf competition in the world on his breaks from being a lifeguard on no duty way. that day. That's great. Yes. That's great. Yeah, he was like a local guy who they call Casual Luke. He lives on the North Shore. <laughs> in Hawaii and in, in Oahu and 
surfed like the biggest waves in the biggest contest like these waves are over 40 feet tall and he won the contest and gq has this amazing profile of this guy and it's sure it's about the competition but it's also his life and how his life has and hasn't changed for him and his family since the competition and just sort of the struggles of being a local in a tourism mm -hmm. town mm -hmm. where you yeah can't necessarily afford to live uh it's it's an economic story it's a sports story it's a family story beautifully written beautifully done highly recommended i just want to throw that that's in great. people's reading lists that's great that's cool that's cool all uh, right what's yours okay so mine is uh i, I guess it's, it's it's the payoff of, of a of a series of cautionary tales we have talked on this podcast before about SPACs, these special purpose acquisition companies mm -hmm. and how Perilous, uh, they appeared to be to those of us on the outside, while those on the inside appeared to be making uh, tons of money. Well, look, most mm -hmm. of the companies that went public via SPACs, uh, which is a short-circuiting of the traditional uh, IPO process, have now uh, gone to zero in the parlance. That is to say, a lot of them uh, just are not working out at all. The latest of which is Lordstown Motors which is really mm. sad because Lordstown was considered a savior when it bought up in 2019 an old GM plant in Northeast right. Ohio. It was a very, very big deal. They were going to make electric vehicle trucks there uh, mm -hmm. and s not save that town, but kind of save that town, right? Because there were all kinds of yeah. GM jobs. It was a very, very big deal. Lots of coverage, uh, including here. Um, and it, Tracy Samuelson actually did those stories. And mm -hmm. um, today, Lordstown filed for bankruptcy protection. Uh, it's, in a, it's in a contract dispute with one of its funders, Foxconn, which might sound familiar because it makes uh, Apple iPhones. And it also had that big investment in Wisconsin that didn't work out. But that's sort of a side story. The main story is an EV maker, uh, which is really capital intensive, but low margin, right? Lots of the others as well. Lucid and Rivian uh, are having some challenges. Um, an EV maker has gone bankrupt uh, because it couldn't handle uh, the current market conditions for EVs. And, and that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. And I just want to point that out. Yeah, I can't imagine like the folks in that town have been right. through such a right. roller coaster, right. you know, thinking. And I just think about all the people who probably stayed there because they thought yeah. it was totally. there were going to be jobs or totally. moved there because they thought it was going to be jobs. And now they're stuck. Totally. 100%. Anyway. anyway. All right. So that's it for news. Let us uh, move on uh, to the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. Last week, I talked about a man in Texas who invented a machine that can turn air into clean water. And we got this message in response. This is Hunter from Myrtle Beach. I just got done listening to the story about the gentleman in Texas who is creating industrial dehumidifiers to provide drinking water, which is wonderful, but super shocked that the two of you, of all people, whiffed on the softball that the guy is basically <laughs> a moisture farmer, a la Uncle Lawrence. Uh, all right. Thanks for making me smart. Whiffed on the softball. Well, thanks, Hunter. Oh, I appreciate man. that. Oh uncle goodness. Lars, uh, Owen Lars, the uncle who raised Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, who was a, thank you for looking this up, folks, moisture farmer on Tatooine, wow. Wow. which is funny because when I uh, originally saw the story, I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about that scene in Dune where the people go out and they gather dew in the mornings to oh, get wow. drinking water. 
Um, that was sort of what originally came to mind. Oof. But yes, of course, Moisture Farmer on Tatooine, much more logical, for sure. All right, we also got this. Here you go. <laughs> hey, this is Kathy from Atlanta. I heard Kai and Kimberly talking about the new record for the Rubik's Cube Challenge. Yes. I really want them to watch on Netflix, The Speed Cubers, because there's a whole relationship behind that record. There's a long story about guys and autism and speed and passion, and it's it's really hmm. engaging, and I don't even like Rubik's Cube. So um, <laughs> they should tune in and really understand more about what happened behind the scenes. Thanks. Excellent. Thanks for the recommendation. Oh, I'll check I, it out. I will go and look. Yeah. That sounds super interesting. Um, Okay. Well, before we go, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? This week's answer comes from the wonderful folks who made us smarter about rum while we were in Seattle for our live show. We ended up going to a rum bar after the show, some of us. Here's Karen McConnell, self-described rum nerd and manager at Rumba and Inside Passage Cocktail Bars. Something I thought I knew that I later found out that I was wrong about is that all rum is sweet. Dosage, commonly seen in cognac production, is a century-old practice of adding sugar to your end rum to round out your flavors. The first rums, dating back to the early 1700s, were described as hot, hellish, terrible liquor and could have probably used all the help they could get. And, well, that meant dosing their rum with sugar. But nowadays, it's more of a stylistic choice in the rum world. While, yes, all rum is made from sugarcane, it really is the most diverse spirit in the world and really can run the gamut on flavor, from sweet to funky, rich to earthy, grassy to leathery. A lot of this will depend on the island or country of origin and their distillation practices. The sweetness isn't for you. I bet you there's a bottle out there that'll make you rethink how you think about rum. Wow. That was I totally thought all rum was by default sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, learn something new every day on this podcast, people. That's all I'm saying. Indeed we do. We want to hear your answer to the Make Me Smart question. Our number is again 508-827-6278. 508-UBSMART. Today's episode of this particular podcast was produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Today's program is engineered by Jake Cherry. Mingxin Tsiguan is going to mix it down later. Our intern is Nilafar Shabandi. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. And there we go. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.